So uh, we are we are in this Lenten series I, I mentioned earlier about gardens. The the idea is that during Lent we spend a, a lot of time um, in the woe in order to to make us appreciate the wow of Easter. The W O E during Lent, and then the W O W uh, the wow of Easter. The idea is that by spending some time down in the dumps, we appreciate. Uh, the resurrection that much more when Easter comes. So, so that's the idea. And we began last week really where it all begins in the Garden of Eden and we'll be concluding in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we're going to spend some time in between looking at uh, different gardens and orchards and things like that uh, through scriptures. And uh, today we're going to look at what happens when Jesus gardens. And I, I have so much in common with Jesus, I realize, because I can kill plants too. I have a black thumb. And and Jesus and I have that in common. So if you ever are like going away on a vacation and you say, could you water my plants? Don't. <laughs> you, you, you don't want to do that. Um, and apparently you don't want Jesus to either. Um, Jesus, as a gardener, Jesus makes a really great carpenter because he can take any tree and turn it into lumber. So... Um, uh, so, so it's a kind of an odd story. Um, Jesus, this is not the picture we expect to see of Jesus. He seems kind of, um, kind of harsh, you know. I mean, it's one thing for him to see bad people doing bad things and, 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 you know, smite them or something. But a tree, you know, and, and it's just a tree being a tree, right? It's not like trees make decisions. I'm not gonna bear fruit just to be obnoxious, you know. Trees don't make decisions like that. It's just a tree being a tree and, and, and Jesus curses it. It's even worse than that because it's not the right season. Jesus is irrational. Did he expect a fig tree to grow figs in March? No. But he cursed the tree anyway. So what is up with Jesus? Why is Jesus acting this way? Well, you know, maybe he's just tense. You know, this is this story takes place during the week of, of we will celebrate later on, um, a, a Holy Week. So it's the week that Jesus spends in, in Jerusalem leading up to his crucifixion. So maybe Jesus is just tense. If you were going to be crucified in a few days, you'd be tense too, right? I was tense at my wedding. Okay, people tell me. I thought I was pretty rational and had things under control, but, but I've been told that I was actually kind of a pain. Um, so, uh, and, and, and a wedding is not a crucifixion. I mean, I don't know. I know some of you don't have the best marriages, but trust me, a wedding is not a crucifixion. So, so maybe Jesus is just tense. But if Jesus is tense, if we're going to kind of ignore the tree incident, because, well, you know, Jesus was having a bad day. He was kind of, you know, he was, you know, Jesus gets this way sometimes. You know, don't don't worry about it. If we do that, then we pretty much have to ignore the the temple cleansing, right? When Jesus goes to the, the, the temple and, and drives out all the money changers, we have to say, well, you know, Jesus gets this way sometimes. He's tense. He's going to be crucified in a few days. Give him a break. And I don't think that that's the, the purpose of this passage. I don't think that this is included here just so we can say, well, you know, Jesus got that way sometimes. So so what is up with the temple cleansing? Well, I was in a church once where where we interpreted collectively, there was this kind of culture in the church that said money was evil. And so, uh, because Jesus drove it out of the temple. And so we still had money in the church. We took, we, we received an offering every week, but we felt guilty about it. Okay. And we had, we had a bake sale kind of thing in the, in the fellowship hall. And we had, um, we had tickets for this kind of luncheon thing that they did. And we felt guilty about that too. Um, we went ahead and, and used money because money makes the world go around. Um, but 
we felt guilty about it. Is that what this passage about driving the money changers is about? I don't think it is. Um, well, what else might it be? There's, there's, a, there's a deeper meaning, and, and this is why they send people like me to seminary so you can learn this kind of stuff. Um, uh, but, but then we write it down in the bottom of um, study Bibles, and then we drive people like me out of business, so I don't know what's up with that. But, but um, if you've got a study Bible or if you've got somebody who went to seminary, they can tell you there was a cultural practice at the time which said, which said, you know, you, you pay, you pay your money. But, um, if you think about money in that era, in that culture, they didn't have plastic, they didn't have visa. You know, it may be everywhere you want to be, but it wasn't there. Um, they didn't have plastic. Um, they didn't have paper money for the most part. They had money that jingled. They had coins. Okay. And so is a precious metal, silver or, or copper, maybe in some cases gold. And it would be, they'd, they'd weigh out a certain quantity of it. And then they'd stamp it to say it was official. Somebody had weighed it properly and you could, you could trust it. And usually what they would do is they'd put, just like we do, they put a dead politician's face on the, uh, on the coin. Um, in their case, they would put a live politician and they would circulate after he was dead. But uh, they would typically put, uh, in the case of Roman money, they'd put the emperor's face on it. Um, if you read a chapter ahead, um, in, in Mark, in Mark, uh, there's an incident where Jesus is actually handed a Roman coin. He says, whose head is that? And whose likeness? And they say it's the emperor's. That was what the money looked like in those days. Which was a problem if you were coming to the temple and you had a denarius or a drachma or something like that. Because, because this is the seat of the Jewish religion, the temple. But the Hebrew law says you shall not make graven images. You can't get much more graven than that. It's a graven image and it's worse than that because the emperor claimed to be divine. He was not just Caesar. He was the divine Caesar. And so if you've got an image of somebody who claims to be a god, well, you can understand the problem. So what they said is, look, people are coming from all over the Mediterranean. What we'll do is we'll set up tables, okay? And if you've got drachmas, you can change them there. If you've got denarii, you can change it there, and so forth. So they would just set tables up, and you could take your your pagan money, and you could change it for good Hebrew shekels. That was the idea. Now, there's a risk here, which is who sets the exchange rate? Okay, now if you've ever had a bucket of popcorn in a movie, you know who sets the exchange rate. Okay, the people whose house it is make the decision about how much it's going to cost, and they made it pretty, pretty expensive, just like in the movies, right? You know, the eight-dollar bucket of popcorn. So, um, so they did the same thing with the temple exchange rate. You'd bring in your denarius, and they'd say, "Well, give me two more, and I'll give you a shekel or whatever it was." Um, and and so it was a it, there at least we know from from some some evidence of the era we know that it was not uncommon for there a very stiff premium for changing your your pagan coins into um, shekels so so it could be that the message here is don't cheat people okay is that the message okay in that case what's that got to do with the the figs what what does cheating people have to do with figs. So this is a conundrum, and you can say, well, the pastor was confusing as usual today, and leave. But instead, I'm going to tell you there's an answer. There's an answer, and the reason I just, I, I was actually going to preach on Isaiah. But when I started looking at the Mark passage, I said, oh, I have to preach on this, because for six years, seven years almost, since I got out of seminary, I've been itching for an opportunity to preach about this. There's a technique that I learned in seminary. There weren't many practical things I learned in seminary. There's all kinds of stuff I learned. Um, and some of it I use, 
But very little can I pass on. Very little is practical that you can use um, in a church setting. So I'm going to give you one today. It's the most amazing tool. I don't know if you've ever had this situation. You've been reading the Bible, and the verse makes sense to you. Jesus wept. What does that mean? Jesus cried. Why, why does someone cry? Because they're sad. See, your Bible scholars, right? It's that easy, right? Verses at a time, the Bible can be pretty easy to understand. It's the problem is, you know, what does this verse have to do with the one before or after, okay? When you start expanding your focus, you wind up becoming more and more, it becomes more and more difficult to understand the Bible. So I'm going to show you a technique that is such an incredibly powerful tool for understanding more than just a few words at a time. It's a great way to understand whole chunks of the Bible, and I really pray that it will help open up your eyes to Scripture, because that's, uh, I, I can tell you it did that for me, and I would love to share it with you. My hope is that it will do the same for you. But the, the, before I tell you the technique, I have to tell you something. I have to take a detour. Um, and if you're saying, this is going to be a long sermon, isn't it? I spent two days in a pew this week. Okay. You, you, hear, the, you hear the laughter from the Presbyterian. Okay. So, so this will be less than two days long, I promise you. Um, so uh, let me take a quick detour about rhetoric. Rhetoric is this, today we think of rhetoric, we don't know what rhetoric it means, it, empty sayings, you know, the politician used a lot of rhetoric, something like that. Rhetoric is the science of communication. It's how do you communicate effectively. So uh, rhetoric is, is, is the idea that there are different ways to communicate that work in different contexts. So for example, we have a rhetorical form that is used in an argument, not, not a bickering kind of argument, but, but like if you go to court, and you want uh, the somebody had a story about a, a court case. Um, you want your lawyer to argue your case, okay? And if they do, they will make an. Uh, do I have? Yeah. So they'll have an introduction, and then they'll have a presentation, and they'll have a conclusion, right? They say they say the evidence will show, and then they show you the evidence, and then they say we have seen you know the evidence, and you must acquit or whatever, right? So you know how that works. And if if the if the if the lawyer doesn't use something like this kind of structure, you're going to say, what kind of lawyer are you? How do you argue a case if you don't do it this way? Uh, this is such a common way of arguing. People sometimes, you know, if you've ever had to make a, a presentation somewhere, people will give you this advice. They'll say, first you, you tell them what you're going to tell them, then you tell them, then you tell them what you told them, right? People talk about this. It's a, it's a very common rhetorical technique. Now, let me give you a different rhetorical technique. It's the joke, okay? Uh, how does a joke work? A minister, a rabbi, and a priest walk into a bar. That's the setup. Okay, and then there's the punchline. The punchline is the bartender says, why the long face, or whatever the punchline is. I don't know. I'm not good at that kind of joke. But um, but the rhetorical form demands that the punchline be a surprise. You can't use the argument form to tell a joke. Okay, why the long face? A minister at a bar, you know, and then why the long face? And then I just told you a joke and it had to do with the long face. That wouldn't work because the rhetorical form for a joke is a surprise at the end. But when they're going to throw you in jail, you don't want a surprise at the end. You want this guy to hammer your case over and over and over again. So different rhetorical forms for different settings. Okay, that's the big picture. Now, I'm going to show you a new rhetorical form that we don't use much. And the reason we don't use it is because we have writing, okay? In an oral culture, this was a much more popular rhetorical form. 
Today, we can always stop. We can go back and reread it. We can highlight it. We can print it out in boldface. We can do whatever we want because we're a, a mostly a literate society and we've got uh, easy access to writing instruments and so forth. So in Bible times, there was a different rhetorical form that I will call the sandwich, okay? And the way the sandwich works is just like a sandwich, you know, bread, peanut butter and jelly, and then bread, right? You, we all, anybody have trouble with sandwiches? Okay, okay. So, all right. So, um, this sandwich technique, um, works the same way. So there, there you go. It works the same way in this story. This story is a great example of one of these sandwiches you see it, um, uh, in the Bible. So, uh, in this case, we have, um, the figs. The fig tree is cursed. Then Jesus goes into the temple and then we resume the story of the fig tree, right? So you've got a nice little sandwich structure. But just like any other sandwich, you can make more layers. So like in a, in a sandwich, you might have bread and then condiments and then meat and then more condiments and bread, right? You can have layers, right? You can do the same thing rhetorically as you're telling your story. So um, another way of looking at the story is is um, we totally need to get a monitor that way. Um, they they uh, The fig tree... Is kind of the outer layer. They come to Jerusalem. Jesus cleanses the temple, and they go out of Jerusalem, and then the fig tree again. Now you say, "Well, yeah, but that's just that's just minor scenery." You know, you know why why make a big deal of that? I'm not making a big deal of it, right? But why would you include minor scenery if you didn't want to draw people's focus into the middle? Why would Mark waste time telling you about them coming to Jerusalem? Of course, they went to Jerusalem. Duh. Right, they're going to this, the temple. Why would you tell them they're going back out? Because you want to highlight what's in the middle. You want to draw people's focus into the center. So, what's in the center? They went to the temple. Okay, but we can keep doing this more and more layers. So, what happens when they get to Jerusalem? Jesus bothers the authorities. Right? Jesus starts acting like he's the authority. He keeps people from walking around, uh, carrying stuff. He he upsets the tables. He drives the money changers out. Jesus starts acting like he's the authority, upsetting the temple authorities. Okay, Then Jesus teaches, and then the authorities plot against Jesus. So as you look at the structure, you see this sandwich structure. It's this beautiful sandwich structure, and the whole purpose of it is to highlight what happens in the middle. So what happens in the middle? What happens in the middle is Jesus says, he says, he was teaching and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So this is the passion area of Jesus. Mark wants us to know this is the center of the story and the rest is important, but it's not as important. So Jesus is saying, don't cheat people, by all means. Don't cheat people when you're making change. Don't cheat people. He's also saying, at the same level, back up a moment, um, He's also saying, don't kill the Messiah, right? That's, they're, they're both things that are true. You should not do this. You shouldn't cheat people, and you shouldn't kill the Messiah. But the sinner is not either one of those. The sinner is this teaching about the house of prayer. So he was teaching and saying, it is not written, my house shall be called, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. This is a, a quotation from the a prophet um, Isaiah. So what's Isaiah saying? Is He's saying you should have a house of prayer. The temple is not sufficiently dignified. These ducks are quacking and the sheep are buying and it's not quiet and sedate. We need to turn down the lighting a little bit. We need a nicer carpet. Uh, this should be a house of prayer. 
Is that what he's saying? No. Okay, how do we know? We go look at what Isaiah says. So if we go back to Isaiah, and this is the kind of thing you realize on Saturday you should have had put in the bulletin. Um, I'm going to uh, to read the key part of Isaiah. It's six verses. Uh, they are referenced in the study questions, so you can look this up. Um, but it says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and be His servants, who keep the Sabbath, do not profane it, and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. God is speaking. I will bring these foreigners to my holy mountain. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Thus says the Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to them. So it's talking about foreigners. It's talking about the same way that God accepts the sacrifices of the Israelites, he also will accept the sacrifices of the foreigners. What is getting Jesus bent out of shape is that God has been at work all around the Roman Empire. People have come from Spain, from northern Africa, from Italy, from Greece, from Turkey. They have come to Israel, and when they get there, they get ripped off. Okay, They find it hard to worship in the temple. The people here have got an excellent reason. We can't have your pagan imagery in the temple. That would pollute it. And Jesus is saying, do you know how hard God has worked to get them here? You are messing with my business here. And it drives Jesus nuts. He says, do you not know? It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. And you're seeing them as an opportunity to make a quick buck. So, what's what happens? You know, whenever you see something like this, Jesus gets angry. God gets angry. The question becomes, okay, so God wants us to do that, or else what? What's what's the implicit threat looming in the background? Right? You, I mean, you want to know, right? You go to hell, you burn in fire, whatever it is. What happens? What happens? What happens is nothing. God moves on. That's what we see in the passage of vineyard, the vineyard, the vineyard story from Isaiah. And I believe that that is the passage, that is the, that is the, that is the inference that Mark wants us to draw. This is not in the Bible, but I will show you, uh, this is something that they would have been aware of. Isaiah's vineyard parable. I did all this work to, to get this vineyard and it yielded the wrong kind of grapes. So, I'm going to knock down the walls, I'm going to quit irrigating it, and I'm going to move on. Right? That's what, that's what God says in the Isaiah passage. That was 700 BC. Mark wrote his, his, his biography of Jesus about 70 AD, uh, within a few years of 70 AD. At that time, the entire Christian and Judean world was, was reeling from the fact that the Romans had occupied, had, had besieged Jerusalem, and then when they when it fell, they destroyed it. They leveled Jerusalem, including the temple. So everybody's going, how could this possibly happen? And my belief is that Jesus performed the miracle. It's the only miracle that happens during Holy Week, um, all the way until the Garden of Eden. It's the only miracle that's recorded in the Scriptures happening during Holy Week. Jesus performs this one miracle to illustrate 
What happens in a garden that God quits, quits um, blessing? So he's calling people's attention to that. And then the, the imagery, the walls being knocked down, things like that, call people to think of, oh, I just heard a ship showed up the other day in my town, and they gave us the news that, that Jerusalem was destroyed. The walls were knocked down. So, so Mark is explaining, here's what happens. God moves on. If you cannot be a fruitful orchard for the work of God, God will move on because he's got other orchards that he can, he can work on. That is the what, what else. And I have to tell you, having spent, you know, it's good to hear people who see the glass half full. I've spent uh, two out of the past three weeks in denominational um, activities. First the Methodist um, three weeks ago, and then uh, last week the Presbyterian stuff. And I will tell you, um, I heard story after story about churches that are in decline, about about um, not meeting budgets, about not having anybody in the pews, about the children not coming, about their children not coming. I heard story after story about decline, and I could not help but think of Isaiah's vineyard. I have to ask myself, is this in fact what God is doing in the denominational churches? Uh, there's no question. We look around the world, we see God is on fire. We look in the southern parts of the world, in Africa, in Asia, there are places where the Holy Spirit is at work powerfully. In our own country, we see there are churches where things are just amazing. But I heard story after story after story after story. People talking about how our denomination, and then two weeks later, our other denomination, is in decline. And I have to ask myself, is that what's going on here? Is our fruitlessness the sign that God has moved on? I hope not. But the lesson here, the lesson here is that outsiders are close to God's heart. And the people of God are to bend over backwards to welcome them. Um, I think I've got a slide. Can you move it forward? There's two ways. Back up one more. Okay. So there's two ways. Here, here's the problem, right? If If you are a temple authority, you have this attitude. And it's a reasonable attitude. It makes sense. You say these foreigners are polluting God's holy places with their weird pagan stuff. That's a reasonable attitude for the temple authorities to have. It's perfectly understandable. What Jesus is saying instead is God's desire is for his people to give special assistance to foreigners. So I think the question for us, the application area for us, is to say, who are our foreigners? And how can we bend over backwards to help them to know the God who loves them? Because this story is about money, I started thinking about money. Uh, for more than a year now, it's been my ambition to have um, to have uh, uh, credit card processing at this church. Um, not because of any good holy motives, I'm sorry, but simply because I thought we might get more money that way. Right? You know? It's like, oh, I didn't bring any cash, but you've always got plastic, right? It's everywhere you want to be. Um, so I've been thinking about it that way. And as I was looking at this passage, I thought, no, that's not the reason. It's not because it's more convenient for me. It's because it's more convenient for them. So I started thinking, you know, maybe maybe the way that we can welcome foreigners is by taking plastic. Because that's the coin of the realm. In our society today, that's what people use. Who, who carries cash? 
right? And who carries checkbooks? God forbid, you can't even get a check. You know, forget that. Um, so I've, I've actually wondered, maybe the application area for us is we need to take plastic. We need to, we need to grease the skids for the foreigners coming through our doors. I heard another story at Presbytery. A church that, um, is either dying or is, um, is in the hospital and may yet recover was talking about, a member of the church was telling about an incident where they had spent $12,000 putting in a new carpet. And then they very reasonably passed a policy that said, no coffee in the sanctuary. And I'm sure the same would be true for hot chocolate, Cody. (laughs) Because they had a $12,000 idol on the floor of their building. And they were worshiping it every week. And one Sunday, a couple came in. They had their little four-bucks coffee cups. And they were turned away at the door. They said, you know, you can't bring that in. And they left and have never been seen again. And so their session had a debate. And they decided that they would permit the coffee cups after all. Because they realized the $12,000 idol was just that. It was an idol. And I have to ask, what do we do for the best of reasons that exclude the foreigners, where we say, you're too weird for us. Because this is a passion area for God. And the right way for Christians to respond to outsiders is to say, you are different. You're weird. We don't understand you at all. But you know what? God loves you. And it is our desire to chase after the things that God loves. And so, would you help us to get to know you so we can see the things in you that God loves? That's the way Christians should respond to foreigners, whatever the foreignness is, because God loves them. And it's up to us to change, to bend over backwards, to make it easy for God to gather them to his holy mountain. Thanks be to God. Amen.